This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com. Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Now, in chapter 46, the Alter Rebbe is going to teach us that there's even a closer way to evoke a feeling of love for Hashem. A way that's extremely close, very, very close for each and every one of us. Because up until this point, everything that we learned in the previous chapters... You have to be a very high level. You have to develop. You have to cultivate. You have to sensitize yourself. You have to develop a feeling, a love for Hashem. It's not something that comes naturally. It's something you have to focus on, you have to concentrate on, you have to meditate on, and different approaches. But here, he's going to teach us an approach that's very natural. And you don't have to be on a great level. On the contrary. The lower level you are, the easier it will be for you to evoke this level of love. Utilizing your nature. It's a love that will come totally naturally to you. You don't need reflection, you don't need great meditation, you don't need great focus, great concentration. It's a very natural, and not only natural, for the godly soul, this hidden innate love that we all naturally have to Hashem. But it comes natural to our natural selves, to our egos. It's the most natural thing in the world to evoke a sense of love for Hashem. This is, this is quite revolutionary. How is it possible? And this is also, he starts out, a straight path, a path that's available and accessible to everyone everyone to achieve. In the previous chapter, the Alter Rebbe described yet another manner in which a person can perform Torah and Mitzvah with his heart, with the love and fear of Hashem, and that is by utilizing the attribute of Yaakov, which is the quality of mercy. In this case, the individual arouses compassion within himself upon his exiled soul and upon its source, the Ein Sof. And in this frame of mind, he studies Torah and performs mitzvah. This endeavor extricates his soul from its spiritual exile, whither it has been banished by, it, by his own inappropriate thoughts, words, and deeds, and restores it to its source in the blessed Ein Sof. In this chapter, the author Rebbe goes on to explain how very, very close it is for every Jew to reveal his hidden love of Hashem. The approach explained in this chapter is novel, as the Rebbe Shlita clarifies, inasmuch as it utilizes the Jew's very nature, thereby obviating the need for, for a specific manner of contemplation, a relatively general and tangible man manner of con contemplation will do, as will soon be explained. Indeed, the lower the spiritual level of the individual, the easier it is for him to awaken this hidden love, a paradox that will also be explained presently. This manner of contemplation enables a Jew to serve Hashem with fiery, passionate love, leading him to excel in his study of Torah and performance of mitzvah. It also enables him to overcome all obstacles, whether from within or from without, that seek to hinder his service of Hashem. Let a man think along these lines. It is the nature of a human being that when he feels a strong emanation of love from his fellow, he will respond in kind. 
And if the manifestation of love is showered by an exalted personage upon a very lowly individual, the responsive core of the lowly person's love will be, at, be all the more vibrant. In, in a like manner, but infinitely more so, to this obtain when a human being is enveloped by Hashem's boundless love for him. Such is the case with the Jewish people. Hashem, Hashem showed his boundless love for his people by choosing them from all created beings, from the highest level to the lowest. This love manifests itself by his taking them out of Egypt and bestowing the Torah and its mitzvah upon them alone. And so too does Hashem show this love to every individual Jew at all times and in all places. Such a boundless love should surely awaken within a Jew an ardent reciprocal love for Hashem. Moreover, just as Hashem, because of his love for the Jewish people, overcame all obstacles which stood in the way of the creating of the world, of this world, as will be explained in chapter 49. So too should each Jew strive to overcome all obstacles that hinder his service of Hashem. There is yet another straight way, i.e. simple and straightforward, that is equally applicable and suitable to every man. And this matter is very high, very nigh, inasmuch as the technique involved is uncomplicated. So it's to every man, equally. It's uh, even because it's simple. You don't have to... doesn't involve any great, complex... Uh, doesn't require anything much of w by way of focusing and concentrating and abilities to sit and concentrate and to think and to meditate and to realize. doesn't require any great sensitivity. It's a simple, straightforward path that's available and accessible literally across the board to every Jew, no matter how spiritual they are, how sensitive they are. Continue. To arouse and kindle the light of the love that is implant implanted and concealed in his heart. This love is already found in the heart of every Jew in, in, in a concealed state. Utilizing the approach about to be described makes it very simple for every Jew to reveal and actualize it, that it may shine forth with its intense light like a flaming fire in the consciousness of the heart and mind, ultimately enabling the person to surrender his soul to Hashem together with his body and material possessions. This being done with all his heart and all his soul and all his might, with the boundless devotion of his soul's essence from the depth of the, of the heart in absolute truth, and especially that is the most propitious time for the person to kindle this love in such a manner is at the time of the recital of the Shema and its blessings, as will be explained later on the particular connection of the Shema and its blessings to the arousal of this love. And this technique for revealing this love is to take to heart the meaning of the verse, as water mirrors the face to the face, so does the heart of man to man. This means that, as in the case of the likeness and features of the face which a man presents to the water, the identical face is reflected back to him from the water. That image mirrors not only the person's external features, but also the nuances of facial expression that signify joy, sorrow, and so on, thus revealing not only his physical state, but his mental state as well. So indeed is also the heart of a man who is loyal in his affection for another person. For this love which he has for the other awakens a loving response to him in the heart of his friend also, so that they come to love each other loyally. Even the love harbored in one's heart arouses a reflected love in another. Now the Rebbe quotes a verse from Proverbs, the end, towards the end of Proverbs, chapter 27. And he says, just like a water mirrors the face of a face to face, so too the heart of man reflects the heart of the other man. And Dr. Rebbe explains. Why does he need an explanation? Because the simple way we learn and interpret this verse is that just like a mirror it reflects the water acts like a mirror reflecting the face that's looking into the water so it reflects it back so too King Solomon is telling us in Proverbs that if your friend loves you you should try to love him so his love shouldn't be wasted 
you should try to reciprocate that love. As he writes in the introduction of Proverbs, that Proverbs is there to teach us wisdom, it's, teach us, it's, to teach us, it's a, a guide, it's teaching us a path, an approach to Hashem. So King Solomon, the simple explanation is that King Solomon is teaching us something. He's not just coming to teach us scientific facts. That the uh, heart is a mirror just like the water acts like a mirror. He's coming to teach us that we should do something. And just like the water reflects the face, so too when someone loves you, shows love to you, when someone loves you, especially if they show love to you, you should reciprocate. You should love them in return. So their, their love should not be unrequited. So the Alter Rebbe explains, Pirush, that's not the meaning. That's not what King Solomon means. King Solomon means literally that just like the water acts as a mirror, it reflects your face, and it reflects your face accurately, and you have no choice in the matter. It's not like the water chooses to reflect. It can't help but reflect. You look in the mirror, you can't help, you can't help but reflect back the image or whatever you're putting in front of the mirror. So too, a heart of one person is like a mirror, and it must respond to the heart of the other person. So much so that if one person loves another person, even if he doesn't show it, just in his heart he loves another person, the other person can't help but reciprocate and love the other person in return. Try it. Experiment. If you love another person, the other person will love you back in return. Can't help it. Just like the mirror can't help but reflect your face, the water can't help but reflect the image, so too your heart can't help but reflect the love of the other person. Unless you're not aware, you're not thinking about it. You're not thinking about it, but the moment you think about the other person's love, you can't help but love them in return. How much more so when the other person shows that love? not just loves you in this heart, but actually demonstrates that love, then surely you can't help but love that person in return. So why is King Solomon telling us this? He's not just coming to tell us a scientific fact, that the heart is like a mirror, one heart to the other is like a mirror that reflects the other heart. King Solomon is coming to teach us something. He's coming to teach us a path that this information, we can do something with this information. What can we do with this information? That if you want to acquire a friend, that you want, to love, you want the other person to love you, this is what you have to do. Go ahead and you develop a love for that other person. When you will develop a love for that other person, that other person will, can't help himself but reciprocate with a love. So he is teaching us, he is showing us a path, a guy is guiding us, He's teaching us a path in life that we should be proactive, we should do something. He's not just coming to teach us facts that mirrors reflect and the heart is like a mirror, one heart to the other is also like a mirror. He's coming to teach us. Take this information and do something with it. Now that you know the way it works, that, that just like a mirror can help it reflect so to the heart. It's not you have to work on it, you should also love the other person in return. He can't help it. Just like the mirror can't help but reflect that other person's face in return. So to one heart can help but reflect that love back. Exactly the way the other person loves them, that's exactly the way you reflect that love. So now that you know this fact, take this information and run with it. Do something with it. Because this is how you can develop friendships. The person complains, I have no friends. Very simple. You develop a love in your heart for the other person, and then that person won't be able to help himself. Can't help himself. Just like the mirror can't help himself. He must love you back in return. So it's up to you. You can, you can do something about it. That's the advice and the wisdom that King Solomon is teaching us. Like a heart to a heart a, a, is like a, a mirror, like water reflecting back a face. And that's even if the other person doesn't even show that love, just has that love in his heart. We'd like to continue on the top of page 682. Especially when he sees his friend's love for him freely revealed. So then, surely you can't help 
but love your friend in return and reciprocate that love. When he demonstrates that love and reveals that love, so you, you're, your heart is moved by it and your heart will love him back in return. Such is the common nature in the character of every man, even when they are equal in status. Even people who are on the same level. Not only a great person, a person, a friend. When someone loves you, you can't help but love them back in return. Continue. How much more so is this the case if a great and mighty king who rules over many lands displays his great and intense love for a commoner who is despised and lowly among men, a disgraceful creature cast on the dunghill. The king depicted here rules not over one land, but over many. His love for the person is not only harbored in the heart, but is manifest. The manner of love is not ordinary, but great and intense. And the love is shown not to an ordinary person, but a truly despicable character. The altar Rebbe goes on to state how his love is displayed. So if it's true with a regular person, your peer, your equal, who loves you, you can't help but love them in return. How much more so if somebody great, a king, not just a king, a great king, and a king over many, many people, over many, many lands, a mighty king. And who does he show his love to? Not an important personage, a minister, to the most insignificant person in this kingdom. A person who is a commoner, a person who has no mind, a person who is not, doesn't have any intellectual qualities. More so, he's actually a despised and lowly person. He's a person who has horrible characteristic traits, a person who's selfish and egotistical and self-centered and self-absorbed, a person who's arrogant, a person who just has horrible emotional characteristic traits and qualities. So he's a low person, a despised person, a coarse person, a person with no refinement, a person who can't stop thinking about themselves. The whole world evolves around me, myself, and I. And in addition... <laughs> He's a disgraceful creature cast on the dunghill. His behavior is completely despicable. Not only is he defective in his intellectual department, he's completely defective. There's nothing going on upstairs. Not only is he completely defective in his emotional department, completely flawed character, but he's completely defective in his behavioral department. He acts despicably, thinks despicably, speaks, dis speaks disgustingly. No redeeming qualities. And could you imagine that this great king shows a love, loves in his heart. Not just a love, an intense love. And not just in his heart. He shows that love and demonstrates that love to this low life. How does he show this love? Yet he, the king, comes down to him from the place of his glory, together with all his retinue. So he leaves his palace. He leaves his inner chamber and leaves his palace and takes with him all of his ministers. And who does he show this love to? All for the sake of this low life who is lying in the dunghill. Continue. And raises him and exalts him from his dunghill and brings him into his palace, the royal palace. And within the palace itself, he leaves him in the innermost chamber, a place such as no servant nor lord ever enters. In the palace, there are many chambers in the palace. But then there's the innermost chambers. Even the ministers are not allowed in. Even those close to the king are not allowed in. His servants are not allowed in. It's the king's private, private chamber. And the king takes, leaves the palace, goes to the dunghill, lifts up this person, washes him up, cleans him up, brings him back home to his palace. And where does he bring him? Into his innermost chamber. And? And there shares with him the closest companionship with mutual embraces and kisses and attachment of spirit to spirit with their whole heart and soul. When a mighty king shows such great affection 
and companionship to such a lowly person, then how much more so will there be aroused of itself a doubled and redoubled love in the heart of this most common and humble individual for the person of the king? With the true attachment of spirit from heart and soul, from the infinite depths of his heart. Even if his heart be like a heart of stone, and not easily roused to tender feelings of love for another, yet in such a situation, it will surely melt and become like water, and his soul will pour itself out like water, with soulful longing for the love of the king. So if it's true that the heart is like a mirror, and the mirror, just like the water, can help itself but reflect the image that's standing in front of the water, like a mirror can help and reflect that face, so the toe to the heart is a mirror to the other heart. So if one person loves another person, the other heart can help. But reciprocate, it's just nature, you can't help it. So how much more so? That's true if it's a simple person. If it's an equal, a peer. How much more so if the one who is showing you the love, the heart that's showing you the love, is this great and exalted and mighty king. And this great and exalted and mighty king loves the simplest person. Not just a simple person, a low life, a vulgar person who's rolling around in the dunghill. And the king, this mighty great king, demonstrates his love, shows his love by leaving his palace, taking his whole entourage with him. Just to come to where this low life is at, this vulgar person is at. And he personally lifts him up and washes him and brings him back home into the palace and takes him into his innermost chambers where the, king, where the ministers are not allowed it. When you, surely the heart can't help but reflect back that love. You just can't help it. And therefore, what's unique about this love is that unlike all the loves that we learned in the previous chapters, where a person has to develop a sensitivity, the person has to develop a has to fine-tune his sensibilities and you have to develop and cultivate the ability to love Hashem. You have to be somewhat spiritual. This love that we're learning here, on the contrary, the more vulgar you are, the easier it is for you to develop this love. It's, It's utilizing, utilizing your state of being, your spiritual state of being, that the more vulgar a person is spiritual, and the more distant you are from godliness, and the more insensitive you are to anything godly, and the more closed-minded and closed-hearted you are to anything genuine, authentic, spiritual, the more you're open to this love, the more you can develop this love. Because it just highlights Hashem's love for you. That Hashem loves me, despite the fact that I am so despicable. And I am so coarse. And I am so distant from Hashem. And I'm rolling around in the dunghill. And yet, Hashem himself, the king himself, takes a personal interest in me and loves me and cares about me. And he leaves his palace. And where does he come to? Where does he hang out with? He comes to me and lifts me up and brings me back with him into into the palace. You can't help but love Hashem in return. Even if you have a heart of stone, your heart melts. And this love is totally natural because it's nature. The heart reflects the heart, just like a mirror reflects a face. You can't help it. Not only natural for the, the godly soul, the nature of your godly soul, it's, it's natural as, as in human nature. Even your ego soul, your natural soul, your animal soul, you can't help but love Hashem. If someone loves you, so shows you such love, you can't help it if you love them in return. So when Hashem demonstrates such open and obvious love for us, we can't help but love Hashem in return. If you'd like to read note 3, page 683. The Rebbe notes that according to the explanation provided in the previous note, it becomes abundantly clear how the arrival of love in this manner is not only suitable to form, but also very 
So in the previous chapters, it's despite the fact that we are so low, that the Rebbe is trying to help us, that even we have the ability to evoke and develop a love for Hashem, if not an emotional, full-fledged love, at least an awareness, a minimal level of love, which also counts, Hashem counts it as love. You know, we're stretching, we're trying, we're trying to get everyone involved and try to get everyone in, but it's a stretch. It's unnatural. But here, it's just the opposite. It's very natural. And all you don't need contemplation. All you need is awareness. And it's not a stretch. It comes very natural to all of us, every Jew. The lower you are, the more natural it is. And not only natural for your godly soul, even natural for your human soul, for your natural soul. And that's why he says that this love that he's discussing here is something that's extremely and very, very close to each and every Jew. So every Jew has the ability to develop a personal love for Hashem. There's no excuse. No one can say, well, I can't develop a love for Hashem. I have a heart of stone. I'm not spiritually in tune. I'm not sensitive. I don't respond to spiritual things. I don't care about spirituality. I'm a very coarse, earthy, crusty, down-to-earth person. I can't relate to spiritual things, to godly things. To So comes this chapter and says, no. No such thing. The moment you're aware of Hashem's love for us, you can't help it. You must respond. It's in nature. You will respond. You see Hashem's love for you. And the more, the course, on the contrary, the coarser you are, the more you feel and realize how incredible Hashem's love for us is. So you can't help but reciprocate and love Hashem in return. Just can't help. It's just nature. It's the most natural thing in the world. So every Jew, this can inflame the heart of each and every Jew and cause a Jew to study Torah and do mitzvot passionately 
and to overcome all obstacles because you have this love for Hashem, this incredible love for Hashem. Hashem has such a love for us. He can leave His palace and demonstrate His love for us, such an intense love. We love Hashem in return and we can't do enough. What else can we do? Let me learn Torah, let me do a mitzvah. There's obstacles within and without. I love Hashem. Nothing is going to get in the way of me connecting with Hashem. And how does Hashem demonstrate His love? He says, Hashem demonstrates His love by taking us into His innermost chamber and hugging us and kissing us. And now, the Alter Rebbe is going to explain how all the details of the parable, how um, they parallel all the details in the moral of the story of Hashem and Hashem's love for us and how we reciprocate with a love for Hashem. The Alter Rebbe goes on to explain that all the details mentioned in the parable of the king are infinitely more applicable with regards to the object of the parable. The relationship of God with each and every Jew. For God, the king of kings, showed the unending love of the Jewish people by taking them out of their never-most level in Egypt and exalting them to the highest level by giving them the Torah. Through study of Torah and performance of mitzvahs, Jews are united with God to the utmost possible degree. This was so not only at the time the Torah was given, but at all times... Hashem takes us out of Egypt at all times. Every day we remember the exodus from Egypt, like he's going to explain in the following chapters, that every day Hashem takes us out of Egypt. So Hashem is demonstrating His love for us each and every day by taking us out of Egypt and by bringing us into His innermost chamber. Continue, contemplating. Contemplating this matter will arouse within every Jew as water mirrors the face to the face, parallel love of God, in a manner corresponding in every detail to the sad figure and image of the love shown by the mighty king to this most lowly individual, but to a much greater degree, doubled and redoubled infinitely more than in the parable has our God dealt with us. For his greatness is beyond comprehension. Just as God is infinitely greater than any physical king, so too does his kingdom extend over an infinitely greater territory, so to speak. And he pervades all the worlds and encompasses meaning transcends all the worlds. So in other words, He is great. Hashem is so great, His greatness is infinite. It's totally beyond our comprehension. So that's the first aspect of the parable, that the king is great, a great king, a wise king, a great king. Hashem is so great, Hashem transcends all the worlds. He's greater than the world, He's greater than us. So Hashem is great. Then He says, a king who's a king over many, 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 many people, many nations, a big nation. Rav, not only is he a great king, but he's also a king over numerous, numerous subjects. So that, that's the second aspect of the parable. And that's what he continues, and from the Holy Zohar. And from the Holy Zohar, as also from our master, Rabbi Yitzhak Luria of blessed memory, it is known of the multitude of the Heichalos, those being the specific levels within each spiritual world, and worlds which are infinite, and of the myriads of myriads of angels found in each world and Heichal, countless and without end. So every world has what he calls Heichal palaces, homes, palaces. Every world you have time and you have space and then you have, uh, you have conscious individual creatures. But they, so the, yeah, they operate, the background is like the palace, different palaces. Every palace contains um, so many, so many, so many angels, tens of thousands of angels. And that's one individual palace. But the world has infinite palaces. So the, and each palace has tens of thousands of angels. So if it has infinite palaces, so you have infinite amount of angels in every world. 
And how many worlds are there? There are also infinite worlds. So true, every world is limited, and every world is differentiated from another world, and every world is subdivided into different palaces, different chambers, but, but if you take it all together, every world contains infinite creatures, conscious beings, angels, talking about spiritual worlds. And every, and every, and there are infinite worlds. And the truth is, even in our worlds, there's so many species. It's almost like a taste of the infinite. The fact that there could be so many different types of blades of grass and so many different types of animals. And, and you know, if you go to the Museum of Natural, Muse- you know, the, muse- the Natural Museum across the park, and you, you, know, you see all these, uh, you read about the species, and you see how many different varieties, and, and even gems, even, even inanimate objects. There's so many varieties, almost, almost infinite amount of varieties of every type. So, of course, we're living in a physical world, so nothing is really infinite, but it's, it's, it's a reflection of the infinite. There can be such a variety, so many different tastes. You know, they have one ingredient, and they turn it into so many different tastes and so many variations. Everything, that, everything today is made of corn syrup, and yet you take this one ingredient and you make it into such a variety, almost infinite variety of, you know. So we, getting a, we get a taste that everything in this world there's, such, there's, there's, there's so many details and aspects, almost like infinite. So in every world, there is an infinite amount of angels. Because an infinite amount of palaces, and each palace has tens and tens of thousands of angels. But ultimately, there are no, there's no limit to how many angels there are. As he quotes from the Talmud, like it says in the Gemara, as the Gemara notes in Chagiga, So, as the Gemara notes, it is written... Is there any numbering his regiment of angels? Yet it is also written, a thousand thousands minister unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stand before him. So it's a contradiction. In Job, it says, is there a number? Meaning there is no number. It's infinite. But in Daniel, it says there is a number. Yes, a huge number, a million 10,000 times 10,000, but nevertheless a number. So what is it? So the Gemara answers, the Talmud answers. The Gemara answers, a thousand, a thousand thousands is a quota of a regiment, but his regiment are innumerable. The second verse then speaks of the numbering of angels within one regiment, while the first alludes to the num- number of regiment which is truly infinite. They're both correct. Within each regiment, like within each palace, there's an, uh, a limited amount of angels. What do you mean limited? A million, 10,000 times 10,000. It's quite a huge number. And each one is a separate conscious being. But how many regiments are there? Infinite amount of regiments. So every palace has a limited amount of angels. But how many palaces are there? As it says in the Zohar and Ari, infinite. And how many worlds are there? Infinite. So how many angels are there? Infinite amount of angels. It's hard for us to wrap our mind around that concept. How could there be infinite amount of angels if every angel is a, a limited being? How is it possible? It seems like impossible. Mathematically, it makes no sense. How do you get from finite to infinite? You can't jump from finite to infinite. <laughs> infinite death. But how do you jump from finite to infinite? It's impossible. If everything is made up of finite numbers, I keep on adding one. Yes, I can keep on adding one. But you can't say it's infinite. To say that it's beyond number, there is no number. No, there is a number, but I can always add one. Infinite and finite are two different worlds. You can't get from one to the other. How do you leap? How do you jump from finite? You can say it's a huge number. It's an astronomical number. The number's off the charts. You know, now the more we know about astronomy, the more we know the complexities of the universe. It's so vast, the numbers. You have to add so many zeros. We don't even have words to describe the numbers, the vastness. Fine, but you can't say it's infinite. It's finite. But it's beyond our human comprehension, but it's finite. How do you get from finite to infinite? And the answer is, We don't. We can't. 
it's not within the human ability. But Hashem could, because Hashem is not limited. Hashem is not straightjacketed. The same Hashem who created the finite, the same Hashem created the infinite. So Hashem could combine, therefore Hashem could combine the finite and the infinite together. Only Hashem could combine the finite and the infinite together. That there should be angels, and each angel is a conscious being, and each angel is a finite being, a defined being. And yet, how many angels are there all together? Infinite amount of angels. It's not within a human capacity. It goes, it defies the laws of math, mathematics. That's true. But Hashem is not straight-jacketed to the laws of mathematics, because He created the laws of mathematics, and He created the laws of logic. And Hashem is neither infinite nor finite, and therefore, He can combine the two. So Hashem combines the two, and that's how you can have both finite and infinite at the same time. Just like the human body is a combination, is, is a miraculous combination. How do you combine the soul, energy, life, with a piece of clay, with a body, with a physical? It's like saying 2 plus 2 is 4 is connected to this table. How can 2 plus 2 is 4 be connected to something material? 2 plus 2 is 4, transcends time and space. Yet the soul, which is purely spiritual, is connected to this body for its entire life. How do you connect spiritual with physical? It's two opposites. It's impossible. But Hashem has the ability to connect two opposites. To square the circle. To connect body and soul. Matter and spirit. Physical and spiritual. Heaven and earth. This is Hashem has that ability. The soul comes from heaven and the body comes from earth. Hashem has that ability. So too, Hashem has the ability to take something finite and to, and, and to turn it into something infinite. It's finite. It remains finite. And turns it into something infinite, an infinite amount of angels. So when you realize how Hashem is so great, that He is a king over infinite amount of angels, what a, a great kingdom he has. It's infinite. So not only is Hashem great, but Hashem is also runs this infinite world. This world that's like infinite. In such variety. And in addition to that, there is a quality that he's going to add now that doesn't exist in the parable. It's unique to Hashem. On top of page 686. Yet before him, all of them are accounted as nothing at all, and are nullified in their very existence. Just as one word is truly nullified in relation to the essence and being of the articulate soul, the soul possessing the power of speech, while the speech of the soul is still present in the soul's faculty of thought, or in the will and desire of the heart, as has been explained above at night. Earlier he explained that the Hashem, the world, it's as if it doesn't exist. Which, of course, you can't say the same of a human king. You can't say that in relationship to the king, his subjects don't exist. Without the subjects, he's not a king. There has to be some relationship between the king and the subjects, by definition. You can't be a king over over ants. You know, if there's no connection between you and the subjects, there's no, there's no, you're not a king. Ants can't make you into a king. It's people who are connected, who are somewhat, somewhat related to you. You're, of course, greater than them, but they're somewhat related to you. When they accept you as their king, you become king. So there's some relationship between the king and the subjects. But Hashem, there really is no relationship between the world and Hashem. From Hashem's point of view and perspective, it's as if the world doesn't exist. Because this entire world, heaven and earth, this entire world with all the angels and all the high levels of consciousness, to Hashem, in comparison to Hashem, it's like one word. Imagine even one letter. What's one letter in comparison to the source of that letter? Which is you the person who's speaking this letter. When you speak a word, what is the relationship of you, the source of this word, and the word that was spoken? What significance does this one word have in relationship to the person who's speaking the word? 
in your lifetime, you can speak infinite amount of words. You can speak and speak. If you lived longer, you can speak and speak and speak. So what is one word? One word is nothing. I speak, I speak one word, it's a non-event. I spoke a word, it means nothing. It has no value, it has no meaning. That's in comparison to my speech, my ability to speak. Imagine in comparison to my ability to think, which is even greater than speech. So what is one word? For every word that I speak, you know, if every word that you think, five minutes takes you a half hour to speak. So the source of, of words are thought. So in comparison to thought, the words are, are as if it doesn't exist. It means nothing. So what's one word in comparison to your thoughts, which is the source of And what is the source of your thought, your own thought, your emotion? Raw emotion. I love. Hate, I love, I'm attracted, I'm repulsed. A, a raw love, a pure love. You don't love in words, you don't love in French or in English. Or It's a pure emotion, there are no words. So what is one word in comparison to the source of words? It's nothing. And what's the source of emotion? The intellect, raw comprehension. So what is one word in comparison to raw comprehension? Raw comprehension transcends culture, language, culture. Two plus two is four. Is, is a pure concept. The communist scientist has a perfect rapport with his capitalist counterpart because it's pure, it's pure raw intellect. There are no words. There's no language, culture, communism, capitalism. You're dealing here with pure... So what's one word in comparison to the source of emotion? Intellect, not. And what's one word in comparison to the subconscious, which totally defies comprehension, language, altogether? And what's one word in comparison to the essence of the person? So this whole universe, this whole entire universe, heaven and earth, with the infinite amount of angels, and this vast kingdom, heaven and earth, and all the infinite worlds, and this whole tumult that we call universe, heaven and earth, spiritual, material, higher levels of consciousness, music, poetry, art, logic, philosophy, religion, spirituality, meditation, mysticism. To Hashem, it's one word, it's one letter. What's one letter in comparison to the person who's speaking the letter, the source of this letter? Nothing. It's nothing. It's less than nothing. It's, it's, it has absolutely no meaning. It's as if it doesn't exist. Nothing happened. So Hashem spoke. So. It's like when you speak. So, call a press conference. What happened? You said a word. What happened? It's an insignificant event. It means absolutely nothing. It has no value. It doesn't add anything. Does it add anything to your ability to speak? Does it add anything to you? The ability to think and to love and to comprehend and, and your being and your essence. And that's true even when we speak. When we speak. And the word leaves us. But the truth is that for Hashem, His words never left us. So the true analogy would be like words and letters before we speak. When we speak, where did these words come from? The words that we come up with. They come from within us. We came up with these words. They didn't come from thin air. We thought of these words. They're our words. It's my language. It's my words that I am using to describe what's going on inside of me. Where were these words before you thought of these words? They were there, they come from within me. But where are they? I can't even find it in myself. Because it doesn't exist. When you're, when you're experiencing the raw attraction, or the raw emotion, or you're experiencing the raw comprehension, especially in your subconscious, you can't even find those words. There are no words. The words are there, but they don't exist. They are in a state of non-being and non-existence. So the truth is that even when Hashem creates the world, Hashem speaks, the words never left Hashem. So those words are completely unified within Hashem Himself. So the words are in a state of non-being and non-existence. 
So this entire creation, this entire world and all the worlds and the infinite worlds and the infinite palaces and the infinite angels are in a state of a non-being, a non-existence. All there is is Hashem. It's as if it doesn't exist. And that's why he says, Kulam before, before him, all of them are accounted as nothing at all. We are genuinely, we are genuinely in a state of non-being and non-existence, as if we don't exist. That's our true being. So of course this is not in the analogy. In comparison to the king, you can't say the subject don't exist, but in comparison to Hashem, we don't exist. It's as if we don't exist, as if, as if nothing changed. Hashem was alone before he created the world, he's alone now. So when you realize we're highlighting and emphasizing the greatness of Hashem. Hashem who loves us. Who is Hashem who's loving us? Hashem, there's no connection between us and Hashem. The distance between us and Hashem is, it's not like just a vast, that Hashem is greater than us. Hashem is so great. Hashem is so mighty. And He's king over such a huge, large empire. We don't even exist in comparison to Hashem. We are in a state of, absolutely in a state of non-being and non-existence. And yet, loves us and cares for us. We continue in chapters 20 and 21. In chapters 20 and 21, the author Rebbe explained at length how a single utterance presents absolutely nothing when compared to the infinite capacity of the articulate soul. This is so even when the word has already been uttered and has thereby become a distinct entity. Even more so, in the case when the person's speech is in potentia, in a person's thought or heart's desire, which are the sources of speech, since a person thinks before he speaks, and speaks about things that he desires. In such an instance, the single word is totally nullified in its source, and is not at all perceptible as an entity separate from it. So too with divine speech that creates and animates angels, the various worlds, and all creatures. Divine speech is always absolutely united with its source, and is therefore always in a state of total nullification to it. Okay. All these angels ask, where is the place of his glory? And they answer, the whole physical earth is full of his glory. That is, i.e., how is the world full of his glory? Because of his people, Israel. For the Holy One, blessed be he, forsook the higher and lower creatures that are not the ultimate purpose of his creation. Choosing none of them but Israel, his people, whom he bought out of Egypt, the obscenity of the earth, the place of filth and impurity. Like the lowly and disgraceful individual who was raised from the dunghill by the king in person, the children of Israel were brought forth out of Egypt by the king himself. So, yet, where, the, where does Hashem dwell? Hashem left his palace, left the heaven. And who did Hashem choose? Who does Hashem dwell with? Hashem chose us. The lowest. We are the lowest. We are the other details of the parable. That the great and mighty king loves with such an intense love. And he demonstrates his love. How does he demonstrate his love? By leaving his palace leaving the heavens and the heavens of heavens, and the angels ask, where is Hashem found? The response is, on earth. His glory fills the earth. That's where He is found. He's found here, down on earth, together with the Jewish people. So who did Hashem leave the palace for? Who did Hashem give up the palace for? For who? For us. Where were we? We were in Egypt. The lowest. We reached the 49 levels of impurity. The dungle. We were rolling in the dirt. We were that coarse individual, that pathetic creature, that coarse individual bereft of any redeeming qualities. No mind to speak of, no characteristic traits to speak of, horrible characteristic traits, no intellectual awareness whatsoever, no good deeds whatsoever. The Egyptians worshipped idols and the Jews worshipped idols. Externally, there was no difference between the two. 
And yet, Hashem left His palace. And He came down to Egypt. In pers- personally came down to Egypt. He personally took us out of Egypt. As we say in the Haggadah, that Hashem personally took us out of Egypt, but here He quotes a different verse. Because there, in Haggadah, we're saying the reason why, reason why Hashem had to personally take us out of Egypt was because the impurity was so intense it said that had an angel go down to Egypt, the angel would have been overwhelmed by the impurity. The angel couldn't deal with the stench of Egypt. The spiritual impurity of Egypt, the stench, was so thick that an angel would get lost in Egypt. Hashem personally had to come and yank the Jews out of Egypt. But that's because like, he had no choice, because he couldn't send his messengers, he couldn't send an angel, so he had to come in person. Here he's saying no, that Hashem chose personally, out of his love for the Jewish people, out of his love for the Jewish people, he did not delegate this to anyone else. He didn't delegate this to the angel. But he himself, personally, without any delegation, personally left his palace, left the heavens and the heaven of heavens, and Hashem personally entered into Egypt, into the thickness, into the darkness, into the coarseness, and he personally yanked every last Jew out of Egypt. Worthy or not worthy, coarse or not coarse, refined or not refined, in the thickness of Egypt, which is the most decadent and corrupt land in the world. And Hashem personally came and personally redeemed every last Jew, every man, woman, and child, every baby, every infant. Not a single Jew was left behind. Personally schlepped every Jew out of Egypt. So when Hashem, this great and exalted Hashem, so great, so transcendent. And he runs this world, there's infinite amount of creatures and angels. Infinite worlds, infinite palaces. And this Hashem abandoned it all, just for our sake, demonstrating his love for us, his intense and profound love for each and every one of us. And he came down to the lowest of all his creatures, which is us. And in our lowest state of being, we were in Egypt, and we were, we reached our nadir, we reached our lowest spiritual point. And from there, Hashem schlepped us out of the, of the dunghill, schlepped us out of the mud, and He brought us back into His palace. Hashem shows such a love for us, we can't help but reciprocate. Hashem loves us. The moment you're aware of it, like a mirror, you can't help but love Hashem in return. And love him with that same intensity. And there's nothing that can stop you from your love. There's nothing that can stop you from serving Hashem. You will overcome all obstacles. Just like Hashem overcame everything just to be able to be with us. So too we will overcome any obstacles from within and from without. Nothing can stop our love for Hashem. And... and, uh, to express our love for Hashem by studying Torah and doing mitzvah passionately and, and lovingly. You spoke before about uh, in the very beginning. You said about Arab, you know, that uh, the whole difference between this chapter and the previous chapter that here you just have to arouse a love for God, but it, you didn't have to think about it. You didn't have to meditate on it. How do you how do you arouse that again? Because just realizing, just th- realizing Hashem's love for us. So the heart is like a mirror. The moment you realize your friend loves you, you can't help loving him in return. You just can't help it. Just like the mirror can't help but reflect your face, the water can't help but reflect your face. So too, you can't help but love Hashem. Once you're aware that Hashem loves you, you can't help but love Him back, especially when you realize who is Hashem and who am I. I am insignificant. I am an insignificant dust, cosmic dust. What am I? in the scheme of things. What am I? A speck. A dust. And who is Hashem? And Hashem loves me. I can do so much for Hashem. I can give Hashem so much nachas. Hashem loves me. How can, how can I not... I can't help it, but reciprocate and love Hashem in return with a fiery love. If Hashem loves me, Hashem shows me love. And He demonstrated that love by schlepping us out of Egypt. So we can't help but love Hashem in return.
why is it not so obvious? I mean, we, we speak like it's a very obvious thing, but it, obviously we see it's not so obvious because not okay. everybody recognizes that. Not everybody is crazy and love, like crazy about Hashem. Because even with a human being, you can have a friend who loves you. The reason you don't love him back is because your mind is, you're not thinking about it. You're not thinking. You're thinking about other things. Most people are not thinking about Hashem, period. Most people don't think about anyone except themselves, period. Most people think about me, myself, and I. And that's the extent. They can go through the entire life and not think about anyone besides me, myself, and I. But the moment you become aware that your friend loves you, you can't help but love him in return. You have, to op- you have to be aware. Listen, that, as the saying says, you can, you can lead the horse to the water, but uh, you can't get him to drink. You have to do something. <laughs> if you don't want to do anything. <laughs> but if a person is not dead, if a person opens himself up and is just aware, then you can't help but realize what's happening. You can't help but love Hashem in return. Rabbi, <clears throat> within the context of what we've learned this evening, um, a father loves all his children. Father loves all his children. So I'm trying to understand the nature of the relationship between Abraham Avino and his son Ishmael. What do we know about the love or mercy or lack of love and mercy Abraham Avinu showed to his son Ishmael? He actually uh, prayed to Hashem for his well-being. When Hashem said that he's going to give him a son. He said, I have Yishmael. He, was, he, he, uh, he tr- prayed for Yishmael's well-being. He loved him, but he wasn't his ear. He wasn't the Jew. He, Hashem says he's going to be a father of Islam. He's going to be a father of many nations, but he's not the Jew. He's not your ear. Yishmael himself, in his older age, recognized that. He publicly recognized that. When it came to Abraham's funeral, he asked, Isaac to lead the procession. He publicly acknowledged that Isaac is the ear. Because with all his greatness, but he is not Abraham's ear, he is not the Jew. Abraham was the father of all the nations. That's why Abraham fathered all the cultures. All the cultures come back to Abraham. Whether it's Islam, whether it's Christianity, um, or even Eastern mysticism, it all comes back to Abraham. His children, when he remarried, he sent his children to the east and taught them the secrets of the Torah. So Abraham is the father of all the nations, because that's also part of the mission of a Jew, to be an influence on all six billion people. That's messianic. That's when Mashiach comes. But so Abraham loved all of his children. But Isaac was Isaac, and Yishmael was Yishmael. Because when it comes to Jews, you go after the mother. Yishmael's mother was not Jewish. But did not Abraham essentially cause a cosmic rift in history by dismissing his son? That was one of the tests, but God told Abraham to listen to Sarah. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen. And God told Abraham, and all future Jewish husbands, you know what's good for you. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen. And no, that, that, that's, that's who Yishmael was, and that's, that's who Isaac was. On the contrary, the Torah is telling us something very hopeful. That just like Yishmael in his younger age tried to murder Isaac, but when he grew older, he grew wiser, and he realized, and he repented. And not only did he stop his attempts to murder Isaac, but he publicly repented and asked Isaac, his younger brother, 14 years, to lead the procession, the funeral procession. And he didn't even contest being buried next to his father. In the tribal age, if you, whoever was buried next to his father, he was the leader. We don't find anywhere Yishmael even contested that Isaac should be buried next to Abraham and not him. He died many years before, 60 years before Isaac. He didn't even contest it. Ask any Arab in the world, where is Yishmael buried? No one has a clue. But we know where he's definitely not buried. He's not buried in the cave of Machpelah. Because he did shuva. That's the message that all the Arabs have to learn from their father Yishmael. That if they want to succeed, the only way they're going to succeed is when they stop trying to kill Jews. Instead of trying to destroy Jews and to make life miserable for Jews. And that's why the Middle East is the most backward place on God's earth today, precisely because they're starting up with the Jewish people. They should learn from their father, Yishmael, that although in his youth he tried to murder the Jewish, the Jewish people, Isaac, but the moment he realized 
that Isaac is the true ear and Isaac is the Jew and he respected Isaac, that's when he was successful. That's when he became successful. So the moment they'll give up their battle against the Jewish people voluntarily and willingly and start treating the Jew with respect and helping the Jew being Jewish and helping the Jew serving Hashem peacefully, that's when the Arabs will succeed. That's the lesson that we should learn from Isaac Ishmael. This chapter, does this relate to his opening words in, in uh, Tanya? Yes, where he says, this very is, close. Exactly. That's, that's the meaning of those words? In a way, he's explaining those words like he's never explained it till now. That it's so close to you to develop a love for Hashem, which will motivate you to think like a Jew and speak like a Jew and act like a Jew and live a Jewish lifestyle and do it passionately and overcome any obstacles that may stand in your way, obstacles from within or from without. Through, yes, what he's teaching here in this chapter. Yes, absolutely. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.